From the small towns to the big cities. We bring you the stories that matter. This is. This is. This is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. Today we tell the story of Sean Pronger, Liz Furia, and Elias Eliasoff. Sean, well, he tells us the story of his dreams of being and playing with Wayne Gretzky. Find out what happens when his dream meets his hangover. We also tell the story of Liz Furia and how she gets through the holidays without her mom, who had just passed away. And lastly, the story of Elias Eliasoff a World War II veteran who recounts his experience fighting in Germany. Let's begin with Sean Bronger. To talk about the Gretzky chapter, um, we're going to have to go back to where it all began. Dryden, Ontario, Canada. Um, I grew up in Dryden. Uh, great town. Loved living there. Uh, but if you don't like hockey and you don't like ice fishing you probably aren't going to enjoy your time in Dryden because it is remote. It's four hours from the nearest city, uh, four hours from Winnipeg, four hours from Thunder Bay, uh, and it's winter there for about eight to nine months. And we're talking real winter when it's 30 to 40 below is the norm. And so there's not a lot to do if you don't enjoy those two activities. And fortunately for me, uh, my brother loved playing and all of our buddies loved playing. So we would play on our driveway, we would play on the street in front of our house, and we had an outdoor rink uh, a block away. And so we played hockey nonstop. But I think the real games were down in uh, our basement at 161 St. Charles Street. Um, like every town in Canada or every city, um, Hockey Night in Canada was a big deal, and uh, everything kind of just stopped. You know, all plans were made before or after Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday nights. And uh, our house, the Pronger house, was no different. We would. My mom and dad would come down there, my brother and I would settle in and, and watch the game, and every uh, intermission or commercial break was time to play one-on-one, <laughs> right, in, right in front of my parents with our floor hockey sticks. And I was always a forward, Chris was always a defenseman, and I'd look back down and, and, and just laugh because my, my parents just watched basically their two sons just beat the shit out of each other while her and my dad would just kind of sit back and <laughs> relax and enjoy the uh, entertainment. And so we would... Uh, like I said, I was always forward, so then I would dump it into the fake, you know, into the living room corner, and uh, he would go back to get it, and I would ram his head into the drywall, and then we'd brawl, and that, you know, just repeat that over and over for, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years. <laughs> and so every game, every Hockey Night Canada, we would do that. And I was always Gretzky, and he was always Bossy, even though Bossy wasn't a defenseman. Uh, Chris's favorite player was Mike Bossy growing up, and, and mine was uh, Wayne Gretzky. And with Dryden being where it is, we were four hours from Winnipeg, a couple times a year, uh, the Pronger family would load up the family truckster and head up to Winnipeg to watch the Jets play the Oilers in the, uh, the old, good old Smythe division. Obviously loved watching 99 play and, uh, and how he could see everything and see the game was just uh, a real thrill. But one time we went up there and we, the hotel, I'm not sure if my dad knew this or we just got lucky, but the hotel that he booked us in was the same hotel the Oilers were staying in. And I'll never forget, we're in the lobby and we're, we're just kind of hanging out down there and we kind of look up and there's Kevin Lowe and Wayne Gretzky. And my brother, just like, like they're old buddies, 
as we're walking past, he's like, hey, Kev, <laughs> to Kevin Lowe. Uh, I, I, find that, I find that hilarious now that, uh, you know, Kevin Lowe would then go on to uh, sign my brother to a massive contract and then he would ask to be traded uh, a year later. <laughs> Their history started early. Um, so then, then, so we're in the hotel and we're kind of just like trying to figure out a way to go see more players and I'm trying to figure out how to, way to see Gretzky. They're in the, Gretzky's in the dining room or the uh, restaurant and uh, my brother and I were kind of peering around the corner like checking him out. He was, I think he was having breakfast with Glenn Sather. So I'm watching him thinking, well, I don't want to bother him when he's eating. I just, this seems weird. And about that time, a guy came up behind me and he had a jersey. He said, hey, kid, can you go get this autograph for my son? And I thought, well, this is kind of weird, but, you know, I never, you know, I'm kind of taught, like, you know, you don't say no to adults. So I walk over, interrupt his breakfast and said, Mr. Gretzky, would you mind signing this? I could tell he was reluctant just because he's in a you know restaurant and I, you know years later I'd figure out why he didn't want everybody else to think they needed to come up and get an autograph. But anyway, he signed it. He was a gentleman. He was great. I gave it to the guy and it dawned on me years later that that guy probably wasn't getting it signed for his son. He was probably hawking it at a memorabilia shop, uh, but lesson learned. So anyway, my you know passion for oiler hockey and my, uh, the fact that Wayne Gretzky was my idol started at a very young age. And then if you fast forward years later, I'm now in, you know, in my own career in the NHL um, and I've, I'm playing for the Pittsburgh Penguins. And um, that is a goal. Actually, the way the year started, I was playing for the Penguins. Uh, at the end, I got traded at the end of 98. But the play is set up in the slot where Pronger gets himself in a great position. Uh, from the Anaheim Ducks, or Mighty Ducks back then. Sean Pronger's a good kid. And I finished the season with the Pittsburgh Penguins rather unceremoniously uh, you know I came there had a actually really good start when I got traded there broke my foot missed all the game the rest of the regular season games and then tried to come back for the playoffs did not play very well and then before a game against the Washington Capitals the Kevin Constantine calls me in and so I get there he's like Sean we're trading you to New York and for some reason I thought it was the Islanders He's like, I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah, so you're going to the Rangers. And I'm like, the Rangers? And he, look, I remember him looking at me like, why do you look so happy? And I just thought like the Rangers, this is like Gretzky's on this team. Adam Graves, Kevin Stevens, Brian Leach, John McClain, Mike Richter, Jeff Bukaboom, Ulf Samuelson, all these guys I grew up watching, right? I mean, obviously my idol. And then all these other guys that I grew up watching. And I'm like, this is going to be awesome. This is a rebirth for me. So... <clears throat> I get traded, you know, get traded. It was a block. It was actually a blockbuster trade. It was uh, Alexei Kovalev, um, Harry York, and fifteen million dollars. So the way I kind of matched up the trade was uh, Alexei Kovalev for Peter Nedved, Harry York for Chris Tamer, and fifteen million for Sean Pronger. It's just the way I kind of broke the trade down internally. And so it was, uh, yeah, it was a big trade, um, very exciting. So, you know, first game, I got traded to New York, so, but we're, they're on the road in Buffalo. So we meet the team in Buffalo, and <laughs> I, 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 mean, I don't know what I was expecting, but I get to the rink, and Craig McTavish is the assistant coach, and he's like, hey, Prongs, welcome to New York. Uh, you're not playing tonight. And I'm like, here we go again. <laughs> um, so anyway... I scratched my first game for the Rangers, which was a sign of things to come. 
Um, but what was really, I was thrilled to go to New York, uh, the city, you know, I've, I've been there obviously with, uh, when I was playing with Anaheim, um, but you know, great city. My childhood best friend from Dryden, Ontario, Chris Hancock had been living there for a few years. And so it was like, all right, well, we got to keep, make sure, you know, you two small town boys from Canada, uh, in the big city, things could get out of hand. So we had to draw some boundaries and, and make sure, okay, you got a job, you got a career, you got to worry about, I got a career, I got to worry about, let's you know, make sure we pick our spots. So we tried to keep our distance, um, but living in New York was, I loved New York and, you know, playing for the Rangers was the, was the best. And so I was prepared to do whatever I had to do and I wasn't playing. Um, so I just made sure, so I'd maybe get in the lineup for, you know, a couple shifts here and there and then I'd be a healthy scratch for three games, get back in for a couple shifts, healthy scratch for a few games. And so I talked to the, uh, our strength and conditioning coach. I said, I want you to drop a program that's going to keep me ready to play. As soon as I get my opportunity, I'm gonna, I want to be ready to go and I'm going to take it. And then it never came. And so it was just getting to the point where something's got to give. And I was just kind of getting so frustrated. And I think it was a game in uh, Washington, actually, where <laughs> I, I finally think I got my opportunity to, to, to do something. It was, uh, I think we're in the second period. I'm in the lineup, which is great. And we're killing a five on three. And he let, and Muckler, who's a coach, left me out there. And I'm like, okay, this is my chance. We're killing a five on three. And he let, and Muckler, who's a coach, left me out there. And I'm like, okay, this is my chance. And I don't know why I thought that was my chance to go show them what I could do offensively, because we're killing a penalty five on three. I don't know what I thought, but whatever, I was gonna make my mark. And uh, anyway, so I, I got the puck. And I'm ready, uh, and I, they kind of, they fan on the puck and they gave it to me and I'm kind of going at full speed. And there's two guys that I, to beat and the right place is dumping in and then, you know, change and hey, you've done your job. But I think, you know what, I can beat, I can beat these guys. So I might, what I was gonna do is like split the D, go in, score, and then, you know, right off into the sunset. Not the case. So I go to split the D, poke check. I keep going, they pass it up, ding, 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 three on two, actually a four on two. Pucks in the back of our net. I'm on the bench, never to come off the bench. And now I'm sitting out I must, for probably the next three or four or five games. So now I'm skating in practice, getting crushed. And I go in to talk to Muckler. Actually, first of all, I asked Craig McTavish. I'm like, Mac T, what should I do? You know, like I, I want to play. I, I want to know what I need to do to, to stay in the line, to get in the lineup and stay in the lineup. He's like, Prongs, go talk to him. So I'm like, all right, all right, I'll go talk to him. So I go in there, and John Muckler, I mean, I grew up watching this guy as part of the Oiler dynasty. Pretty intimidating dude, he's got that s s massive head of silver, silvery white hair. He's got his feet up on the thing. I mean, if, if he had a scotch, it wouldn't be out of place if he had a scotch and a cigar, uh, the way he was sitting there. And I'm like, hey, Coach Mux, uh, you got a second? He's like, yeah, come on in. I'm like, hey, Coach, I just wanna let you know, I love, love New York, love playing for the Rangers. I wanna play more, what do I need to do to stay in the lineup or get in the lineup and stay in the lineup. And he goes off on a rant for about 15 minutes about how good the Edmonton Oilers were in the 80s at playing a give and go game and how players today in the you know mid to late 90s could not play that style of game and it was very frustrating to him. So he went off for about 15 minutes on that and I remember walking out and Mac T was walking by as I was coming out. He's like, so how'd it go? I'm like, honestly, I have no idea how it went. but. He's a big fan of the way you guys played in the uh, 80s. And so I kind of went back to my locker and I'm just like, something's got to give. So I, t I called my buddy, 
Herbie Hancock. Hello. Herbie, tonight's tonight. We're going out. And so, all right, we're, we're going out, and we just, so we go to whatever local pub, which there is, you know, seven on every block. And so we pick one, go there, and, you know, we're having a great time. And New York's awesome. Having a great time. Here, a couple different spots we hit. And I remember walking into a bar. It was, I think, 1.30. And I was very concerned when, when uh, the after-hours bars uh, were, what time they open or what time, you know, when's that going to go down. Because uh, I wasn't ready to call it a night. It was 1.30, which is, you know, obviously last call is getting close, or so I thought. And I remember walking over to the bartender, and I'm like, excuse me, ma'am, what time uh, what time do the after-hours bars open around here? And she goes, you mean after we close at 4.30? <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, this will be good. So, of course, we stayed there at 4.30, shut that bar down. Luckily, it was only about a 20-minute walk back to my place. And then, you know, I got there at like 5 and had to get up at 7 to drive to practice. And which is not a big deal because that particular, the day before, I was actually practicing as the eighth defenseman. And so I wasn't too worried about how I felt when I got to practice. So I get up, obviously not feeling the best, but I'm like, all right, just deal with it. And so get to practice, get grab my usual breakfast of champions, coffee with a double chocolate chip muffin. And I'm sitting there with kind of chocolate smeared all over my face. Just taking it all in in the, in the locker room, and I'm like looking around, and something's kind of, something's a little off. I'm like, it's kind of like when your your wife, girlfriend, mother would re- rearrange the furniture. And I'm looking around, I'm like, do we get a new player? What is what is going on here? And so it was just the color scheme was out of whack. And so I'm looking, I'm like, no, all the name bars are the same, name tags. And I look over, and I'm like, in my stall, which is normally the yellow jersey, because I'm either on the fifth line or I'm on the fourth set of defensemen. Um, it was a red jersey. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Because um, uh, the red jersey is Gretzky's Lions jersey. And I'm like, well, obviously this is a mistake. So I grab the jersey. And I go to, uh, I go to Mike Fogelin, who's the equipment guy. And I'm like, Fogs, you gave me the wrong color jersey. And I kind of throw the jersey at him. And, he's, and he grabs it and he throws it back. He goes, no, I didn't. And I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, you did. Dude, I'm yellow. I mean, we all know that. I think all the fans know that. And uh, he's like, yeah, not today, bud. Um, Kevin Stevens has the flu, so you're practicing with Gravy and Gretzky. And I'm just like, are you f- kidding me? And he's laughing at me because you could see the glazed over look in my eyes. Like he, not the first time he's seen anybody like that. Um, so I'm like, now my throat's in my chest, in my throat, my throat, my heart is in my throat. And I'm like, this is not, this isn't good. This isn't good. This, like, I grew up idolizing Wayne Gretzky. And now I have the opportunity to practice with him. And I'm, it couldn't be more hungover. I'm probably still drunk. And now I'm thinking, what have I done to my, like, this is like a career-defining moment, right? Right when you're about to break through, maybe you do something stupid, go get drunk with your buddy, and now you're playing, now you're practicing with the greatest, well, with the greatest player that's ever played. So this is all going through my head as I'm trying to figure out how do I manage this whole situation as far as like, okay, I need to get your, your head wrapped around this, get your body ready. You just got to get through this one practice. So I go into the shower, crank it on freezing cold, sit in there for like 10 minutes and figure out like, should I tell Gretzky I'm hungover? First of all, does he even know who I am? Second of all, do I tell him I'm hungover or do I just play it off like, okay, I'm just, that's how I always am? So I'm thinking, you know what? He's a dude. He's gonna understand. Just man up and just tell him what's going on. So I walk over to him like, hey, Wayne, uh, I'm practicing with you today. He's like, yeah, I saw that. I'm like, yeah, I just want to let you know um, I had a buddy in town. Things may have um, gone on a little bit later than I would have liked, and you know, just a slightly hungover. So, 
if you don't mind, would, could you just keep the puck away from me and maybe, you know, just throw it over to Graves and I'll just kind of bang in rebounds and I'll do all the grunt work and, you know, we'll, you know, I'll survive this practice and hopefully not get cut. And he's like, Throngs, don't worry about it. I've been there myself. And I'm like, yes, he knows my name. All right, he's on board. The greatest player in the game's on board. And all of a sudden, things started to lighten up for me. I just felt like, okay, we're gonna get through this. Kretz is on board. I'm gonna get out there. We're gonna, he's gonna snap the puck around. I'll probably bang in a couple rebounds, maybe leave a good taste in the coach's mouth and be like, you know what, Pronger kid looked pretty good today. And so now I'm thinking, this is gonna be my chance. So we get out for practice and I'm, I'm skipping around the warm-up like I'm a 15-year All-Star. I'm like, like, just like the arrogance that I had as a fifth-liner practicing with Gretzky was not, it's just embarrassing, but I'm, I'm just going with it. And so I'm just enjoying every moment. And I'm just like thinking, what if? Like, what if? There's, there's that ch- small chance. You know, I remember reading an article that Gretzky once said that you've put, if you put a bunch of hockey players out on a pond, they're eventually going to find the players that they pair up with naturally. Just the way they each see, the way they pass, the way they see each other's blades, and they'll just find each other, like him and Yari Curry did. And I, I kept thinking about that article, and I was like, what if? I mean, I, I gave it about a 1% chance that that could happen, but I'm like, what if? What if we're out here? Because the Rangers at that time, we were kind of struggling. And so it wouldn't be out of, like, it would be completely plausible that if there was an ounce of chemistry, that they might give us at least a game. And so I thought, okay, what if? What if Gretzky and I had this natural, undeniable chemistry and we get to play the next game and let's say we win, maybe we do something good and we get the next game and the next game. And so this is all going through my head in warm-up of a f***ing practice. And so I'm like, all right, here we go. And so first, finally, Muckler blows a whistle. All right, we're going to warm up. We're doing three-on-twos, like straight down, like kind of three, three-quarter ice, three-on-twos. I kept forgetting, like, I'm the first line, so I better get my together and get, be ready to go. So I'm like, all right, let's do, do this. And so I'm expecting Gretzky, hey, we had a deal. He's going to backhand this saucer pass over to Gravy. He'll either shoot it or shoot it, probably, as uh, Adam Graves can. And so I'm not really even looking. Anyway, I, at the corner of my eye, I just see this, like, fluttering puck come flying over to me. I'm like, holy shit, he's passing it to me already? And it, you know, it was, a, it was like a, a wounded duck and it hits the back, I'm playing on my off wing because I'm left-handed shot playing the right, right side. It goes off my backhand and literally over the glass. And the whistle goes, he's like, all right, go again. So we do it again, he does the same thing. I don't think this one did not go over out of play, but whatever, I fumbled it around. Anyway, that was just the sign of things to come and every single pass Gretzky made was to me. Every one of them. And I barely survived that practice and I skated over to him after I'm like Gretz I'm so sorry I didn't yeah I don't, I don't know what to tell you he's like Pronks don't worry about it I've been there myself and he gave me a wink and I'm like that he was playing me the whole time and I think that was actually better than if he wasn't because it made me feel like I was part of the team like he like he, I was close enough in the group that he could with me like that or he just didn't give a shit about me and just, just did it anyway. But it was, uh, yeah, that's the Gretzky story. And uh, I, still, I still think we would have had some great chemistry. But uh, I guess the world will never know. And some great storytelling by Sean Pronger. And thanks, as always, to Greg Hengler for getting us this great story. 
And sometimes big stories in life, well, they're just brushes with greatness. And how greatness handles things. I mean, that Gretzky handled Pronger this way, teased him, meant, hey, you're one of the guys. It happens. Come on, let's get through this. Because, you know, Gretzky could have been a diva and handed it to him and run him out of the league, let alone run him out of the team, and instead turned it into a practical joke. Great storytelling and Sean Pronger's stories are chronicled in his memoir, Journeyman, the many triumphs and even more numerous defeats of a guy who's seen just about everything in the game of hockey. By the way, Pronger now lives with his wife and two children in Orange County, California. By the way, send your stories in like this. We've all, at some time or another, maybe came up or brushed up against some people like this in our lives. And it's very counterintuitive to hear a star treat somebody who comes in drunk to practice like this uh, in, a, in, a, in a gentle way, in a, in a fun way. So send your story, as always, to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And folks, we can bring you stories like this because of our terrific sponsors at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale comes to you with their free and terrific online courses. And by the way, the Constitution 101 course, well, I learned more taking that course than I did in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. It's that good, folks. Go to hillsdale.edu. There are dozens of great courses. The C.S. Lewis course is a real winner, too. And now it's time for another story titled Getting Through the Holidays Without Your Mom, brought to us by Liz Berea. Before my mother died, but when she was very sick, I was dropping my son off at daycare. When we arrived, there was another little boy who had just been dropped off by his mom. He couldn't have been more than three years old, and he was wailing. I want my mom! I want my mom to come back! He was completely and totally inconsolable. His tears weren't the feigned kind put on for a show, protesting the drop-off, the kind which dry up ten seconds after you walk out the door. No, this child was genuinely distressed. He wanted his mom very, very badly. I don't know if I've ever felt more in tune with another person's emotion, because at the time, I could already see what was coming. My mom had terminal cancer, and like this little boy, I could imagine a world where my mom wasn't coming back. I could clearly see myself in this child, sobbing for my own mom, wanting her to return to me, and feeling very small in a world that suddenly felt like it was going to swallow me up. I understood this boy because, like him, on a primal level, I knew the panic of needing someone who was vanishing before my eyes. My mom has been gone for over three years now. I've gone through a lot of firsts without her. I've survived a time that did not seem at all survivable. I've had two more children, children who will never know what the holiday season feels like with my mom in it. They don't know how the house used to smell with my mom cooking her turkey or preparing her special holiday crescent rolls with sausage. They've never had her holiday punch with the rainbow sherbet. They haven't ever opened a stocking stuffed to the brim with treasures from grandma or seen how she could host an enormous number of guests in a way that made it seem so easy and joyful. They don't know how amazing she was at creating a sense of home. Every holiday season, my mom would host a craft fair out of our house with her best friend and next door neighbor. For three days, the entire first floor of my childhood home was transformed into a cozy holiday shop filled with crafts. The kitchen was set up with special treats and a delicious homemade punch. My sister and I loved the craft fair, 
It was a staple of our childhoods, quaint in a way you hardly see anymore. It was pure magic for us, and it was entirely representative of my mother and her unique ability to make everyone feel welcome and at home. When the holidays roll around, I feel the absence of my mother acutely. If you've lost a parent, I bet you do too. Sometimes the absence feels like a dullness. Things that were once bright and exciting, like putting up the Christmas decorations, feel muffled. I can't quite enjoy them the way I'd like to. Other times, the pain of missing my mother feels so intense that I can't look straight at it. It's like the sun that way. I can look around it, but if I stared straight at it, I would injure myself beyond repair. So I don't quite look. But I muddle through the way we all do with our longings. The way you have to do when a person you love deeply isn't there to fill their place at the holiday table. For these past three years, it's been a challenge to carry on with tradition. If a tradition is inextricably linked to a person who's gone, how can it ever feel right again? For me, it hasn't felt right. I don't know if that changes. Perhaps it does in time. To me, the holidays were my mom. She wasn't just a player in the holiday scene. She created the magic that made the holidays feel like home. My mother loved Christmas. She had a collection of Santas that she kept on display year-round at her house. I keep a little Santa hanging on the wall by our front door year-round, too. It makes me happy. That reminds me of her. I have a young family like many of you do. I have kids who need to enjoy their holidays and who will grow up with their own special memories. Memories that I'll have a huge part in creating. And so I try to enjoy myself for them and for me. This year, we're doing something different for Thanksgiving. My dad and sister and I will be going with our families to my aunt's house. There'll be a whole house full of aunts and uncles and cousins, and I'm looking forward to it. After dinner at my aunt's, we're going to take a trip with cousins from the other side of the family up to North Conway. This isn't how we've spent the holiday in the past, but it feels right this year. It's not tradition yet. Perhaps it's tradition in the making. It takes time to know. My aunt has just become a new foster mother, and her young foster son will be spending his first holiday with our family. I don't know what he's been through, but I can guess that, like me, he'll be feeling the acute pain of missing his mother this year. There are a lot of people who know this feeling. If you're missing your special person this holiday season, please know this. It's okay to feel dulled out. It's okay to feel an ache. It's okay to know that to look straight at the sun will be too much for you, and sometimes you just have to look away. You'll look up again when you're ready. And when you're ready, you can think about what kinds of traditions you want going forward. You can decide when the time is right to begin them. And if you feel like that little boy at the daycare crying for his mom, I understand you. I am you. A lot of us are. And that's Liz Ferrio and the piece, Getting Through the Holidays Without Your Mother. And I lost mine on December 8, 2012. And it was a difficult Christmas because the holidays were my mom, too. That was her life. She had a little gift shop, but uh, that wasn't her life. That was after the kids all moved out and she was bored. So she adopted all these people, ran a gift shop, and people would come into the shop, and when they were down on their luck, my mom would give everything away. And at the end of the year, my dad would look at the books of that gift shop, and it would lose money. And it lost money because my mom didn't open the gift shop to make money. And that was my mom's heart. She just, she wanted to have a family around, and she'd lost her family. And they'd all moved, we'd all moved away, and we'd come back for you know a few days, a week at a time. But we knew that that broke mom's heart. And so for all of you out there who've lost a mother or father, um, Liz is right. You've got to make new traditions. You've got to start them anew for your kids. 
and mom will always be there for me. And Christmas is always a little difficult for me, but there's my daughter's shiny face, all the cousins and everyone else, and you just got to put on a good front and get get to it, just as mom would tell me. She'd always say, get to it, get to it, damn it. So for all the moms out there, thanks for doing what you do. And send in your stories if you've lost a, a special a special parent or an absent parent. Uh, send your stories to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. We tell every kind of story here on this show, the happy, the sad, and everything in between, and beautiful stories of a good and beautiful country. And that's what we do here, tell the story of America to Americans. If you like what you hear, folks, uh, the podcast, well, it's free to you, but it's not free to make. And if you love what you're hearing here at Our American Stories, we are a nonprofit. And what you're listening to is free, but it is not free to make. So if you care to support what we do, if you care about the mission, which is to tell good and beautiful stories of a good and beautiful people in a good and beautiful country, and that is tell the story of America to Americans, well, donate to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're tax deductible. We are a nonprofit. And now it's time for the last story of the day, the story of a World War II vet who fought in Germany. And it's brought to us by our very own Rishi Sharma. Between 1939 and 1945, the nations of the world entered the bloodiest war history has ever seen. 16 million Americans served in World War II to fight the Axis powers. Some of these heroes are still with us today, but are dying at an alarming rate. By 2018, roughly half a million were still alive. And today, the youngest are in their mid to late 90s. Since my junior year of high school, I have set out to find these men and capture their stories in order to preserve and honor their memories before they fade away. In this series, The Heroes of the Second World War, we bring you their stories. My name is Elias Michael Eliasov. I was born on December 9th, 1920, in Harlem, New York City. I was in the 28th Infantry Regiment of the 8th Infantry Division. I was in the INR Platoon, Intelligence and Reconnaissance, and uh, it was the most interesting experience that I will ever, ever have in my lifetime. Mostly in combat, we did night patrolling, day patrolling, but the night patrolling was the most, with the hope that we would come and capture some prisoners and bring them back for interrogation. We were told not to engage in combat because that's not the role of a reconnaissance unit. Find out where the enemy is, how many you think there are, and also try to bring back a prisoner for interrogation. When we were stalemated, right after the Hurtgen Forest campaign, we maintained observation posts. We found a home that was on high ground, and we went up into the attic, and from that attic we had a fantastic view over a small river where the Germans had gone in the middle of the night and left the Hurtgen Forest area and we could observe everything, including the pillboxes they were in. It was a magnificent experience and a magnificent observation post. They immediately, after a day or two, 
knew that we were there and they sent mortars and artillery at least three, four times a day. And we would run down to the basement and then when they stopped, we went back up again. They ripped half of the attic off in the two, three weeks that we used that observation post. John Flaherty and I, our radio stopped working. And I told John, I said, John, I don't know whether it's the batteries or the set. I'm not gonna take a chance. I'm gonna take the radio back with me. We had a Jeep in the back of the house. I said, and if I need a new radio, I'll get a host new set. If I need new batteries, I'll let them put it in and I'll come back and I'll, and I'll bring some more supplies, food supplies also. We could always use extra. The attic stairs were only good for one man. That's how narrow they were. Only one person could walk up or down. So there I am, my rifle is over my shoulder and I'm carrying the radio in my hand and I'm going down the attic stairs. A German with a rifle in his hand is walking up the stairs and he's got the rifle pointed right at me. Instinctively, I threw the radio at him. He dropped the rifle, I caught his rifle, he caught the radio. So I said to him, put your hands on your head in German, Hans zum Kopf. He said, ich kann nicht, ich habe the radio. You know, I can't, I have the radio. I said, yeah, yeah, good, good, good. Come with me. And I took him down to the Jeep, put him on the side with me. I had his rifle, he had the radio, and I drove back to headquarters with him, turned him over to headquarters for interrogation, and then came back. That was a, a weird, weird situation. To this day, I don't know whether he would have shot, and if he did, he was inches from my chest. The war was almost over. We, we were sent on a patrol by the colonel, so we got into the jeeps, two guys to each jeep. We were passing a place where there was a barn and rifle shots came out at us. And I saw the German soldiers go back into the barn. So I told the other two jeeps, get on either side of the barn. First, take a look in the back and make sure there's no door. And don't let them get out of the barn. They must outnumber us. And shoot if they try to get out to keep them in. And I told my jeep, you wait back here. If they take me prisoner or shoot me, get the hell out of here and tell the other two jeeps to follow you. I took a handkerchief out, a white handkerchief, and I put it on the top of my rifle. And I walked towards the barn yelling in my pigeon German. <laughs> I said, is there a soldier that speaks English or French? And a German came out, also a sergeant. And I said to him, listen, the war is almost over. I don't know about you, but I've been almost nine and a half months fighting and I don't want to die. And I don't think you want to die. You don't have any more planes. You have no more tanks. Worst of all, you don't even have any more soldiers. And I heard on the radio yesterday, they're going to use the Hitler Jugend, that's like the Hitler Boy Scouts, to defend Berlin. My heart and my prayers are with those kids. Go back into the barn. Behind me are several hundred Americans that are coming this way and they're going to be passing by here. In fact, I would not be surprised that they can be here in about 20 minutes walking. If you leave here and head north, 
you're going to meet the Russians coming down. Now, tell the truth. Do you want to get killed by the couple of hundred Americans who, if they spot you, they'll start firing at your barn and none of you will walk out alive or you'll be wounded or killed? If you go north, I don't think you ever want to become prisoners of the Russians. Don't you think your best option is if you surrender to me? And I said, don't come out with your hands on your head. Just leave the weapons in there and come out. You and I will march however many that you have there and we'll meet the soldiers that I just told you about. I'm not giving you a story and I'll leave you with them. And then I have to go on my mission. He went back to the barn and five, six, seven, eight minutes later, he walked out, 40 Germans surrendered. I said, okay. I said, the American drivers, they will drive the Jeeps. All the other Americans, including me, will be walking alongside the Jeeps or up front. I will walk up front with you and we will go to meet and put your elderly soldiers or your partly wounded soldiers into the Jeeps with pleasure. And we don't care. And that's exactly what we did. And in about 15 minutes, we met the Americans coming. And I turned them over to a lieutenant. He says, what the hell is this all about? I said, Joe will tell you. And I left one Jeep with the driver to explain what the hell happened. And the rest of us went and we accomplished our mission. And for some reason or other, Joe must have told them some story about what happened. I ended up a week or two later getting it a, bron a bronze star. I'm not afraid of death. I realize that uh, I have been extremely fortunate. I consider myself extremely grateful. You know, when, when I go to funerals and people go, and out of respect, they go on and on and on and on about the deceased. I have told my daughter, I said, sweetheart, get up there in front of the mic and say, he was a wonderful son, he was a wonderful brother, he was a wonderful husband, and he was a wonderful father. Straight shooter and a good friend and someone you can depend upon and, and a wonderful human being and then sit down and forget it. <laughs> That's it. Sit down and forget it. What beautiful words. What simple but hard to achieve things in your life, the things he described at the end. But having your priorities right, that's a big deal. And my goodness, does he. And that gratitude. And you can hear it coming through the microphone. Having seen what he's seen, he's grateful for this country, for his life, and for so many other things. We've been listening to Elias Michael Eliasoff and his story. The Hurtgen Forest campaign ended in a German defensive victory of the 120,000 American soldiers that fought. There were 33,000 casualties, about a 25% casualty rate. And by the way, if you have a story, submit it to heroesofthesecondworldwar.org and Rishi will get on it. This is this young man's life mission. It's ours too, to collect as many heroes of World War II as we possibly can before it's too late. On the next episode of the Our American Stories podcast, we bring you the story of how the poet Walt Whitman served both the Union and the Confederate armies during the Civil War. Also, the story of Audie Murphy, 
America's most decorated soldier. And finally, we'll bring you the story of Rosa Parks, and not just from an historian, but from her own mouth. Thanks again for joining us for this episode. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories Podcast.